0: My apologies to the technical crew. <laughs> we were like, come on, man. Jeremy, what are you doing? Well, I figured since we'll be going through chapter 2 in its entirety today, I'll pull an audible. Sometimes audibles are good. You guys are probably all wondering, he is not reading Ecclesiastes 2 on the screen. <laughs> I thought... While while we were singing that song, I that is a beautiful song. And it's something that we should be singing often. And it's something that we need to be reminded of often. So before we enter into this uh, time of preaching and teaching, let's pray and ask the Lord for help. Heavenly Father, I uh, please pray for Your help here in faithfully delivering Your Word. As I was communicating to some Mormon elders throughout the week. I was reminded about the importance of the foundation of Your Word. That it alone is what we must stand upon in order to rightly divide our lives. To rightly decipher truth. That if we do not have Your Word, we truly really have nothing. We are pinned to something or or trying to anchor ourselves in something that has no foundation we truly will be cast to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. A rudderless ship with no direction. And I sense that that as I was speaking to these men that that's what they, that's what they embrace. That the foundation of their faith is a, a prayer over a book and a feeling that they have arrived at that is their ultimate authority in the end. And how often we are caught up in that same mistake. Even as Christians, we can get caught up in the same thing, basing reality, our interpretation of reality, on feelings. How we feel in a particular moment. And we can get swept away in those emotions quickly and begin to make very foolish decisions. Swept into the darkness within a moment's notice. And so I pray that this text today would reground us in the importance of a heavenly understanding of our earthly lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, for those who were not with us last week, we are venturing into Ecclesiastes as I have been given the opportunity to preach these last couple of weeks. I thought, you know what, we need to dig into a text. I would love to actually just teach through a book. Um. Because I think teaching through a book is really helpful. And teaching expositorily through a book, it, it allows the teacher to move through a text having built on the foundation of a, of a previous text. And the nice thing about Ecclesiastes is it's timely. It's something that we need to be reminded of often. The message really is of, Ecclesi- of Ecclesiastes is if you don't have an understanding above the sun from a vantage point above the sun, from a providential revelation, a special revelation above the sun, you will fail to understand what's going on below the sun. And you'll despair. Your life will be really meaningless venture, caught up in toil, chasing after the wind. And so, we began that study last week by looking at really where is the book of Ecclesiastes. It's placed, it's placed, situated in the Old Testament, in the Tanakh in the writings, in the Ketuvim. Uh, the Tanakh stands for Torah, which is the law. The Nevi'im, which is the prophets. And then the Ketuvim, the writings. And it's the wisdom literature of the Bible. And I was sharing a fascination with why would this book, of all books, be the wis- part of the wisdom literature in the Bible? If you think most wisdom literature is proverbial, right? It's like the Proverbs. It's do this, and this will happen. Do this in your life, and it will bring about blessing do this in your life, and it will bring about curse. That's really how the Proverbs are structured. It's something that you need to commit to your heart and memory, that as you engage in the world around you, that as you make decisions, the Proverbs should be ready and on your mind because it will bring about blessing. The interesting thing about Ecclesiastes, uh, situated in the wisdom literature, is it's really Job's partner. I, I I think Ecclesiastes is the companion book for Job. It's to help you better understand what's going on with Job. It's to help you better understand what's going on in your life. That time, chance, injustice, and death befall you constantly. Right? It's we're surrounded by it. And we know that it's something's radically wrong with the world around us. We know that it's Havel, as the Koaleth says, the teacher says, it's Meaningless, meaningless, worthless, worthless, it's vain. And so you might have in your translations, worthless, meaningless, or vanity in it. in it, And that's something that really he is trying to drive home to us. The author is trying to show us, hey, I want to bring a teacher into your life. A uh, wise man who has delved into the things under the sun, and he wants to demonstrate to you really how meaningless it all is. Unless your, the meaning is provided to you by God. So our life is meaningless apart from God. And so with that said, we're going to dive into chapter 2 here today and uh, take a look at three particular arguments that I believe that the author is making. Okay, uh, Let's read together. It really starts in verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. In chapter 1, excuse me. And I applied my heart to seek and search out the wisdom, all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity. a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said, my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. So before we dive into this text, let's just ask ourselves, because I believe this is kind of setting the preface uh, to chapter 2 ask yourself a few questions. What does He mean by what is crooked cannot be made straight? We know of other texts in Scripture where it says that if God has made something crooked, we cannot change that. I think what He's alluding to is the brokenness of the created order. The effects and impacts of the fall. I think what the author here is pointing to is there is something about our lives this toil under the sun that we live in that has been subject to futility. We see that in God's curse, right? In Genesis chapter 3, where the ground would no longer produce or yield its fruit, that you would have to, by the sweat of your brow, work it. It wouldn't be as easy. It wouldn't come as easy to you. We know Paul references that in Romans. He says that cre- the creation awaits the sons of glory. Why? Because it's been subject to corruption or futility. The same kind of language is used. There's something about the crookedness of our experience in this life under the sun that can't be made straight by anything that we attempt to do on our own. What God has made crooked, there is no way we can make something straight. We can't rearrange what God has arranged. And he realizes that that's vanity. That's, it's messed up. There's something radically wrong with our experience. What is lacking cannot be counted. There is a great miss here. Something so far beyond our understanding that it can't even be counted. It can't even be measured. So there's an issue that we're experiencing in our, in our lives, and we've all gone through this. We've all experienced it where it just seems like everything that we put our hands to seems to turn into sawdust before our very eyes. And Now, all of you might not have experienced that, but anybody who's been stripped of anything in their life will certainly share with you that exact experience. As you're going through your difficulty and your trials and your tribulations, and you might be a younger one, right? Uh, As you're sharing this and you're maybe complaining about your life across the table from this wiser one, they're looking at you with this smile, right? Of like, it's going to be fine. You're going to be okay. I know you're struggling right now. But listen, I've had everything stripped before me in my entire life, over and over again. I've gone through incredible difficult things that i i would wish not upon my worst enemy and I still a model i i've made it out on the other side that life doesn't always work out the way you thought it would and that's okay why because what greg taught on this morning god is in control god is sovereign over all things and if you don't have that understanding i think this is what the koheleth the teacher is trying to get across to us in ecclesiastes that your perception of reality will be nothing but meaningless so i think that that this message here has a twofold effect on all of us and it also gives us the opportunity to really stand in a position when we're preaching to people the gospel when we're sharing the gospel it has an apologetic effect it has an apologetic foundation for us i believe that you can use ecclesiastes as a template when you're addressing the unbeliever and i will make the, i hope to make that case as we go through that. But there's two things that need to happen. One, a self-examination of where we personally stand and how we are personally responding. Right When you think about your life and what you're going through, are you trying to make straight what God has made crooked? Do you find yourself constantly kicking against the goads? you Working hard towards something that you'll never be able to change? You'll never be able to affect? Let me give you an example of those things. Jesus said something like, you're not going to be able to add one hour to your life by worrying about anything. You can't change anything. You guys know the prayer of serenity, you know, grant me the serenity of the things I can't change, right? There are things that, you, that are completely outside of your control. You can't change aging. Some people try to do that through exercise and proper diet. Some people believe that they will extend hours of their life, days of their life, years of their life through proper exercise and eating or even Dr. Willie's protocol, right? Always got to put that pitch in, right? Right? They think that they can add length to their life, days to their life, when we know for a fact that God is sovereign over the very moment, the last breath that you'll take, the last beat of your heart. So you can't change those things, right? So we need to examine ourselves, and in the same sense, when someone is presenting those things to us, we can easily get caught up in them. Um, I know that for instance, you know, I'm married and my wife might share concerns that she's worried about. You know, things often come up with finances or or other issues, things that are common to raising a family and so on. And what will end up happening is that there will be uh, a challenge that will rise up in her heart. And the first thing that I need to assess is, is this biblical? Is she grounded in a proper understanding of what the, you know what the Lord is teaching us in his word about this kind of situation, whether it be with our kids or finances, whatever it might be. And what will happen is I can easily get caught up and swung in the emotion of it too. And we can get swept away in those emotions, right? And anybody who's raising kids and, or have raised kids right, or, or, or experienced those things or dealt with life and been married for some period of time and worked through incredibly difficult things uh, would know. They would know that this is something that you can easily get caught up in. You can get mixed up in the emotion of it. Someone has to be grounded. Where must you be grounded? In the Word of God. And if you're not, you'll both get swept away in it. And, and I'm sure anybody who's been married in here for any period of time will easily say, yes, I've been swept up in that. Uh, we, might be get, we might get swept up in some theological um, speculation, like we talked about the, this morning, right? Um, There are a number of debates that are happening out there right now. The simplicity of God is one of them. Um, There are people who who have not done the homework, who have not spent time in God's Word, who are going to delve into this incredibly challenging topic, get swept away in the emotion of it all. They might start building up bridges and dividing walls. They're on this side and we're on this side. Without even really knowing and having worked through the difficult issues, Uh, Of the text themselves. They find themselves in alignment with one, one theologian or another, right? And we've seen this in our own lives. We have a tendency to get swept away in debates, in difficulties when it comes to those kinds of things. Why? Because you're basing your beliefs on what you interpret from Scripture. Someone comes along and they shatter that with this idea or this concept, and we get swept away in it quite easily and quite quickly. And so it's interesting that I believe this is a reference to Solomon. um, that he says, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceive that this is also a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. What is this saying? It's saying that as the more you learn, the deeper you dive into things, the more you realize you don't know. And the more you realize you can't know. The more you know, the more sorrowful you become about circumstances, the more you come to recognize the lack of control that you have over things. Like, for instance, another person's salvation. <laughs> have anybody been completely bent sideways in trying to convert someone? Your hope is that they, you know, are saved. Right? You, we were just talking this morning, right, Greg? Right? That you have a desire. To see someone converted, to see someone change, to see their eyes open. And what do you come to realize? That it doesn't matter how hard I try, how persuasive I am in my speech, no matter how much I push, that they're not going to change. It's some it's a work that the Lord has to do. And so I go, you know, you can go on and on with examples of what it means to actually be sorrowful in your increasing of knowledge. I think the, the deeper that we dive into the text of scripture, the more biblical wisdom we have the more we realize how bad it is out there, if you will. The more we recognize the real tragedy of the fall. The more we recognize how much is really not within our control. And so I do promise you that we're not going to leave in despair today. Uh, There will be an encouragement at the end, but it's interesting how the author has structured these arguments. He starts with his own experience with pursuing pleasure. And then he challenges the idea of what it means to pursue wisdom. And then what about work? What about all of our labors? And so, and then he ends with, I believe, a very encouraging word for us, something that we need to hear and hear often. So let's let's look through this real quick. So, I had said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure and enjoy yourself, but behold, this is also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, of course and how to lay a hold on folly, till I might see what is good for the children of man to do under heaven during a few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and implanted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water, forest growing of trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions and herds and flocks more than any, who had been before me in Jerusalem. And I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, and also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. And then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And so with that said, ask yourself the question, why, why would after perceiving all that this man had accomplished, he even says that he found pleasure in this experience? in doing the work itself in creating all these things i mean these are wonderful things this is what we were designed to do if you think about it right in the end of it all he says this is vanity it was chasing after the wind it was meaningless it was a vapor why would he have said that after after going through all of these things and describing what we would consider to be a pretty wonderful life he said in the end of it all it's meaningless okay So let's look at this, let's dissect it a little bit. Pleasure, in the sense, hedonistically speaking, is really feeling of satisfaction or enjoyment. Doing things for the chief end and purpose of feeling enjoyment or satisfaction, right? He even cheered his body with wine. He's saying that, yeah, and notice he says, and I still kept my wisdom, by the way. I'm not trying to get hammered. I I still kept my wisdom while I was doing it. But I just wanted to enjoy the things of life that were with me. I know that cheering my mind with, uh, my, my body with wine Will will relax me and open me up to things um, that I may not have considered before. He even says the making of great works, the building of houses, planting of vineyards, gardens, and parks was real estate development. He was he was killing it in the real estate side of things. Right, owned a lot of land, and he he got to do a lot of really sweet developmental projects. Think about that. And we're talking about he built houses, plant, vineyards, yeah all plural right gardens and parks he owned a great vast land and was able to develop it he bought male and female servants and even slaves to this extent were born in his household that means that he had a perpetual a perpetual labor force you know he had people that were working for him under his household constantly to the extent that they were having their own families which according to their law would have been his property as well. He possessed herd and flocks. Anybody knows that during this time, you know, that's an expansive source of food and clothing and other things that come from having herds and flocks. You had to have the land to do that on. You had to have the labor force to, to be able to manage that. I mean, that's incredible. The kind of wealth that he's describing here is really, really impressive. He even talks about the purchasing power of silver and gold. He had it in his treasuries. It was, you know, he wasn't sweating paying his bills, if you will, right? He even had the treasure of kings and provinces. You know, in First uh, Kings four twenty through twenty one says this about Solomon: Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and they drank and they were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. So he was an overlord, a suzerain king who had underlords, right? He had kings and lords that were under him that paid tribute to him. Greg was talking about bowing down to the king. We even know uh, that the Queen of Sheba at one point came and visited Solomon to um, learn of his wisdom because of his reputation, and she paid tribute to him. Jesus brought that up in the Gospels. He had male and female singers and concubines. He had the pinnacle of entertainment. Right? So he basically owned the entertainment industry. Solomon owned it. He had them present in his house. He was not lacking of anything. Right? He said, whatever my eyes desired, I didn't keep from it. Whatever my heart... He said he didn't withhold any pleasure from his heart. He, he said, I found pleasure in all my toil and that was my reward. Um. But yet at the end he said, All that my hands have done, the toil and expended doing it, all was vanity and striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun in his mind. So then he looks at, he explores the vanity of wisdom. Let's let's dive into that. So starting in verse twelve, he says, So I turn to consider wisdom and the madness and folly, for what can be for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. So he's saying that. you know, he's asking a hard question here. He's saying, what can someone do who's come after me, right? A person who is wise, who's experienced all this blessing. What could they do that, you know, possibly any more in addition to what I've already done? And he says, what has already been done? There's really nothing more to do under the sun than what I just shared with you. I basically covered every aspect of life that you could possibly pursue in the first point. So only what has already been done. And then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. And there is more gain in light than darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So it's a proverb, if you will, right? The wise has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. And then I said to my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For of the wise and of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and striving after the wind. So let's take a dive into what what is, what is he saying here? What is he trying to convey in this particular argument? And I believe what he's trying to show is, listen, reader, hearer, the reason uh, that all of this pursuit of pleasure was vain and striving after the wind is because of what I'm about to drive home right now in terms of my pursuit of wisdom. He says wisdom is really a knowledge rightly applied in God's good creation, right? Is we gain and obtain knowledge and then we apply it rightly. That's really just what wisdom is. Madness is a mental illness, right? Or maybe an extremely foolish behavior and a state of frenzy or chaotic activity. And folly really is just a lack of good sense or foolishness. Notice the proverb that he points out here that he says. The wise person has his eyes in his head. He can see properly. But a fool walks in darkness. And that's a good thing. It's not that that's necessarily bad. He sees value in that. But what does he note? What is the key issue that, that stands out here in this text? How does he conclude this argument? Yes, the wise, there is value and benefit in being wise in this world. I'm not saying that that is vain. There is is a value to that. However, what happens to them both? Right? What happens to them both? The same event. They both die. (laughs) So, how does he conclude? He goes, Why have I been wise then? I see the value in that. I know that that's something I should be pursuing. I know a fool is walking in darkness, but what happens to them both? They both die. So then why have I been so wise? Why have I been pursuing this? Why have I been pushing so deep into the books? Remember how he concludes in chapter 12? And to the end of reading, there's, I mean, there's no end. You could read book after book after book. We were just talking about this uh, at, the, at the house the other day. We could seriously read for years and years, all of our whole entire life, and never have read everything that has been written. So you got to be selective with what you read, right? And be careful with what you read, cautious with what you read, because you have to carefully curate curate, uh, the books that you read because you're only going to be able to read so many in your life. And what does he say here? Well, if the fool lives as a fool their whole entire life, and I have been doing nothing but laboring and toiling and pursuing wisdom, and if anyone has done that, has anybody gone to school for any extended period of time, has anybody gotten a bachelor's degree or maybe a master's or even as far as a doctorate, you will have felt Solomon's pain here. I have toiled. I have written paper after paper. I have went after it when it comes to theological studies. I have been to the Puritan study on Friday nights when Greg finally holds it. I have worked through difficulty. I have been challenged with subject matters. I have gone deep into the languages. And then we both die. And then he goes even further to say if he doesn't want to put a nail in the coffin on this one, what does he say further? He says, what happens to fools is going to happen to me also. Why have I been wise? This is vanity. Why? Because there's no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in in the days to come, all will have just been long forgotten anyway. You're going to be a blip in history. And within just a few years, maybe even one, maybe less, forgotten. None of this matters. Why am I working so hard on trying to have this all figured out when in the end, I could write volumes. And listen, guys, how many people do you know like, from 100 years ago that have written any kind of important work that you're like, I read that often? Can I say, very few. Go further than that. 200, 500, go 1,000. How much you guys spend time in people who are 1,000 years old? With dead people, right? Just hanging out with them. That's what you're doing when you read books. You're hanging out with dead people. right? Most of them are long forgotten. Think about the millions and millions and billions and billions and billions of people who have walked the face of this earth and have died, who have long since died, and they are utterly forgotten, not remembered. And here you are, toiling, reading the books, going deep, and trying to figure things out and solve all the world's problems, right? And even getting angry when people disagree with you, you know. Think about that. How much time do we spend debating on subject matters and dying on every hill with people, right? When we are having discussions about matters that are important to us, husbands and wives, I just refer to you. How many times do we do that? Often, right? Friends and family, those who are our extended relatives who might not hold the same religious. Beliefs as us. Think about that. We just crush relationships because, man, that's what's most important. And I'm not saying that um, there aren't hills to die on, but I'm saying we probably die on more than we should in the name of I am pursuing wisdom and I want to answer life's hardest questions. Right? Solomon says that's that's vain. That's chasing after the wind. That's foolish. If you only live life under the sun if that was alone living life. So, why then, we have to ask, why would Solomon express a hatred for life? Okay, here's a man who had everything. All the pleasures, and he pursued it, and there was nothing that he kept back from his heart. Everything he set before his eyes. He had everything. Really, everything. We, they believe that Solomon, in terms of his wealth, um, incalculable, was the wealthiest man to ever walk the earth. Uh, more so than like Nebuchadnezzar and, and others. these were He was a very wealthy man. Very powerful figure in society. Nothing was withheld from him. But yet, he hated life. I hate life. If I only lived in this vantage point. If I only lived in this perspective. If life was this, and that's what he's trying to tell us. If life was only this, and I had all of this, I still would hate my life. Consider this for a moment. How many depressed, suicidal celebrities are out there? Or uber billionaires, right? People who are hyper-wealthy, right? How many, of, how many of those exist out there? Tons, right? So then he takes, he takes one step further. He wants to press in a little bit harder on us. He wants to say, let's take a look at your work, at your toil. So if pursuing pleasure is vain, pursuing wisdom is vain, Let's look at what you put your hands to and the kind of work that you do. Let's dig in here, starting in verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to a man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be a master of all which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is vanity. So I turned about and gave up my heart to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. What is man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work a vexation. Even the night his heart does not rest. This is also Vanity, and so think about this. Um, we know that those who have pursued, let's say, a career path, and I think uh, Greg brought up a point this morning that really touches on what I think uh, the Koalef, the teacher, is trying to get through to us. the The fast forward clicker, right? That that example. If you had a clicker where you could just fast forward your life. You know, Let's say you want to get past these humps in your life, these difficulties in your life. You just don't want to have to wrestle with them, deal with them. You can just fast forward. You'll go only fast forward. You can't rewind, right? Fast forward. You just get through them and see how things work out at the other end of that fast forwarding. Well, in this example, this guy fast forwarded. He was going through a difficult time. He fast forwarded his life. And in the end, he was some, you know, basically broke, you know, uh, lost everything, Divorced from his wife, you know everything's gone, and he's like, "What in the world happened? You know, what happened to me?" Well, he fast-forwarded how he completely neglected his marriage for his career, and pursued pleasure instead of the relationship with his wife, and lost everything. And so he's by himself, lonely, broke, old man, and in the end, um, came to recognize the flaw of pursuing pleasure. And I think that's exactly what he's getting at here. Think about this. So you spend your whole life pursuing a career, pursuing wealth, to what? Heap it up into storehouses and barns to, pose- to, to preserve it for later. You even withhold some pleasures right, for a time in order to plan for this future event. And then you die and someone else gets to, gets to enjoy it. That's pretty messed up, right? I think that's so true. You worked super hard to have that retirement plan set up. You poured in, man. You were like resisting the temptation of getting that like nice thing, right? For someone or maybe doing something for your kids. Because why that future event that's coming down the road is way more important than what's going on right here and now. And so I withhold pleasure for a time. And I've poured into it and I poured into it and I poured into it and then you're hit by a car. Right? We saw videos today which people are nearly escaped with their lives right, because of God's providential kindness. Well, let's say it's the other way. God's providential kindness ushers you into the kingdom. Eternal. And you're facing the living God and you're like, man, I had all these plans. <laughs> I had this money I saved up in this retirement account, man, that was fat. And then uh, someone else gets to spend that now. Someone else gets to take that. So his complaint is I can't take anything with me when I die. That's messed up. That's evil, he says. The fact that I cannot enjoy the things that I had labored so hard for, that is messed up. That is an injustice. So he asks, what is man from all the toil and striving of heart in which he toils underneath the sun? For all the days of his life are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. And the night he does not even rest. Why? Because he's tossing and turning, worried about the wealth that he has stored up. Think about that. Many people who have a lot of wealth, they will, they'll be the first to tell you they spend a lot of time worrying about people trying to take it from them because they've worked so hard for it in some cases. And they don't want to lose the thing that they've worked so hard for. And then gets, what ends up happening is that they place their entire dependence upon it, their hope in it, they they feel the most stable when they have the most money. And some people who don't even go that far, they continue to amass wealth because they feel instable. They don't feel like they have enough. They don't feel like they could weather the storm if the storm were to come, the supposed storm that's on the other side, right? And so what they do is they keep amassing wealth and amassing wealth and amassing wealth. They spend their whole life. And um, I actually, we we probably all have a family member like this who lived through the Great Depression. Um. I, I remember my my grandfather telling me before he passed away. You know, he was a he was a pretty well-to-do man, but he lived very like meagerly. He didn't he didn't really exploit his wealth. Um, and I asked him. I said, you know, why why are you so frugal with like everything? This man wouldn't like he was he was worried about the heater, like dialing it in. You know, making sure that the heat was just like I don't want to spend too much money on my you know utilities and everything was frugal. Why? He was always worried about another great depression coming around the corner. When I grew up, he told me, we were worried about everything. I had to go work jobs that I didn't want to do and I had to, you know, made I made pennies for the family to try to just get by with the very little we could eat, and so what did he end up doing? Hoarding money. He was really wealthy. He didn't he didn't give it to anyone. He was a very greedy man, but it was because of a fear that drove him to preserve his money a fear that he might not have ever again. And so he did whatever it took to make sure I keep keep everything here. This is where my stability is found. This is where I find, feel most safe. That I know that if everything else were to crash again, like the Great Depression, that I at least have this. And Solomon's saying, that's foolish. That's stupid. That's chasing after the wind. Because it will all, as we sung today, could very easily, riches and wealth, be stripped from us. It is but a breath in our hands, right? So then we have to ask the hard question. Uh, what is there left then to live for in this life? You know, really, that's, that, that's what this should lead to us. So when you're talking to an unbeliever, right? Um, because honestly, this is all they have. Think about that. An unbeliever, a person who's not a Christian, They're looking at, this is all we have. I remember, I'll never forget um, a a good friend, Mark Spence. He was preaching the gospel in uh, Cal State, Berkeley. He was doing some open air preaching there. Uh, And it's on a video, and I can find it and share it with you guys. I thought it was really powerful. Um, It was a powerful argument. This atheist challenged him. He said, you Christians, you Christians, all you care about is the future, the heavens. being going to heaven one day when you die. We care about here and now. We care about what's going on here. Because this is all we have. And that should be your concern too. You guys have heard the term, you are so heavenly minded, you are of no earthly good. right? We've all heard that. That's true in many cases for Christians. Many are so heavenly minded, so caught up in the future, that they're of no earthly good. They're not any help to anyone. They're, they're in their holy huddle waiting for the rapture. right? And they don't want to be involved in society. They don't want to do anything. They just want to get by for now. And I, and I say don't do anything. I maybe shouldn't say that's harsh they they do a lot in the sense of wanting to pr- provide for their family for the temporal, but they're not saving for the future. Just just take a look at uh, church buildings, for example. Look at church buildings that are still standing that were built over a 1,000 years ago in places like England, right? Even churches here in, in downtown, in Colorado Springs, here in downtown Colorado Springs. Beautiful buildings built out of stone that would last centuries. Now look, right? These temporal thrown up, Structures that won't last, you know, 100 years at best. Um, The roofs won't even last 20, right? Think about it. And there's really really nothing to them. Like I, I look at this building like, and this is a blessing. This place is a blessing, but just look at it, guys, right? Not much to it. Pretty bland. I like the stained glass. I love the architectural structures, the design, the artistry that went into it, the care and the concern. The desire to honor and glorify God in that work. Beautiful structures. If you haven't had a chance, definitely go to England when we're allowed to fly again without passports. Um, go there and check out those buildings. I mean, I've been to Westminster Cathedral. It is a beautiful building. Durham Cathedral, York. They did things with excellence and cared about them. And a matter of fact, their stories. I forgot which cathedral it was, but the the uh, main timbers that were put in the in the roof structure. Okay. We're starting to fall apart, and and uh, they were worried. Like, what do we do? How how can we replace these timbers, these structures? I forgot which cathedral it was for. Um, but the planners, some hundred years earlier, had in the plans we grew all these oak trees out in the out in the pastures out on the on the church property, so that when these timbers went down, and these trees took hundreds of years to grow, by the way, right? That when those timbers go bad, you'll be able to replace them. Because the church building was designed to to last centuries until the return of Christ. And they expected it to be a while. Some thousand years. Some people would say, we're in the early church, New Testament church history. So then what are we doing to create a lasting legacy right here? A legacy that honors God. And so I share that to say, just look at the outward expression of what our what we value and what we care about and where we spend our time really comes through in our work, and what we do. We were designed to be creators. We were designed to do things with excellence. We were endowed with particular gifts to honor and glorify God. If you don't have that locked into your mind and this is all you're left with, then you would despair. You would hate your life. And guys, unbelievers hate their lives. Many of them do. We know that. They share that. We see them crying out on Facebook. We do. Right, crying out for some meaningfulness in their life, pleading for it, trying to pursue it in pleasures, trying to pursue it in attention, trying to pursue it in identity, trying to pursue it in careers and in wealth, right, they take their selfies of their food and stuff with them right they they want you to they want to try to create some meaning, but you know what they they toss and turn and vex in their sleep at night, they do, and sometimes we get caught up in that same. Issue, unless we have this final thing to meditate on. Okay? So, in the end, we must conclude with Solomon here that a temporal life from a pagan mindset or a pagan worldview is really worthless under the sun. It is meaningless and will be quick and soon forgotten, chasing after the wind, vain. That is a harsh word. But man, let me tell you, that preaches. You share that with your pagan friends. And when I say pagan, I mean whoever's not a Christian is a pagan. They are. They're a pagan in some form, some shape or form. That might sound harsh, but it's not. It's just providing a description for what a non-believer really is. It is someone who is worshiping something in a direction that is leading them to a vain and worthless end. And apart from Christ, we have no meaning think about all the beauty now, okay, of Christ. Let's let's contrast this with what it means to actually be a Christian. I get excited. I'm going to get fired up with this. We need to repent from a pursuit of pleasure, okay? It truly is a worthless endeavor for all our days pass away under your wrath, God, the Psalter says. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. And the years of our life are but 70, and even uh, by reason, maybe of strength, 80. We might last to 80. Some of us, right? Yet there is a span but toil and trouble and they are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and of your wrath according to fear you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So let's center ourselves in we are temporal creatures that can't change the world around us. God is in 100% Sovereign control of it. He controls everything. The tornado that skips through the trailer park and smashes some trailers and not the others, right? The tsunamis that wreck entire cities, the hurricanes that blow through Florida, earthquakes that are eventually going to knock California off the map. All those things he's in 100% control of, 100%, including the rise and fall of nations, including moving the hearts of kings like water. Your heartbeat, the last one. He knows every number of your heartbeat. So teach us, Lord, to number our days to recognize how frail and dependent we are as creatures, right? O oh Lord, this Psalter goes on to say, make me know the end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths and my lifetime is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. All of mankind a mere breath. Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Psalm 39 4-6. through six. So with that in mind, realize you're temporal. Realize that You're but a breath, a shadow. However, in Christ, you have everything. As a new creature in Christ Jesus, you are a son, a co-heir of all the eternal blessings that Christ has bestowed upon us. In Him, we have everything. In Him alone will we find meaning and value even in the pursuit of pleasure. So then we need to repent of trying to pursue worldly wisdom. It truly is a worthless endeavor. Paul says in Colossians 2, 6-10, through 10, he says, As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, as established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of the and the rule and ball authority. Just think about that. Where are you going to find Thanksgiving? Thank being thankful for who you are and what you are. Right? Despite the ailments, despite the struggles, despite the turmoil, the toil, this uncorrected crookedness of the world around us, despite the corruption and the, the apparent vanity, despite the wealth when it comes today and it goes tomorrow. Be thankful for who you are in Christ. You have everything in Him. That's what Paul's trying to get after. If you try to pursue the vain wisdom, this worldly philosophy, this pagan philosophy, this outlook, where like wealth and money are going to make you really happy. A career is going to make you really happy. That's where you're going to find your meaning. Do the best for you. Be the best you now. Right? Only you know you. Think about all the you stuff out there, right? <laughs> and how it's I-centered. No, no, it needs to be Christ-centered and Christ-focused in order to truly find meaning. You need to die so that He can live in you, right? How are we going to know that? Well, the the, the psalmist, the psalter says, Your Word, Lord, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's by this that my eyes are lit, that I have my eyes in my head properly, that I don't live in darkness, right? And he says later in Psalm 119, 130, the unfolding of Your Word gives me light. It imparts understanding to the simple. This is how I'm going to properly navigate life and understand things for what they really are, despite my circumstances. So then finally, we need to repent from the pursuit of fulfillment in work and its product. It is a worthless endeavor. So my work is going to give me fulfillment and the product of my work is going to give me fulfillment. That's a worthless endeavor. Think about the G- the, the parable Jesus told the disciples. He said, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, (laughs) you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. They will be given over to those. You've, you've stored, you've gathered up, but they will actually be given to someone else. They won't be yours. All of that which you've, you've uh, worked towards will be taken from you. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 6-10, through and we quoted this last week, godliness with contentment, is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is not the root of evil, by the way. It is a root of all kinds of evils. And is it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. I know of friends who have decided, who are incredibly gifted people, who went, I have a very close friend, who went all the way up to his PhD and walked away from it uh, in languages. He got a master's um, from Talbot in divinity, went up to getting his PhD in the languages, and um, he was studying Coptic languages, and really he wanted to go deep in um, the biblical languages. And man's brilliant, wonderful Wonderful teacher, a very gifted man. He decided to walk away from it all, and now is like I would say he probably is rejecting the faith to pursue a career in finance because this is what's going to make him most happy and provide for his family. I guarantee you, this man's miserable. I know I know him really well. He's a good friend of mine. He is miserable. He is pursuing something that he believes will ultimately br- bring in fulfillment, but he's walking completely contrary. To to the gifts that God has obviously given him, he's not able to express them. He's probably one of the most miserable people I know. Um, he he fits this description exactly. So then, in the end, how how does how does uh, the Kolet the teacher conclude? He said, "What gain has the worker from his toil?" Starting in verse nine, or this is actually Ecclesiastes three nine through thirteen. I have seen the business of God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. Right? So money is not necessarily evil. The Proverbs even say a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. So it's finding your meaning in it. That's, what, that's what's locked up. But if you think about it, look what he says. There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all of his toil. Verse 24. This also I saw from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat, who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give it to the one who pleases God. This is also vanity and striving after the wind. So in the end, what is it? And you're going to hear the author as we get to venture through this text together um, in the months to come. You're going to hear the author recircle back to this every time. There is a gift that God has given to man to enjoy. He's saying, stop your striving. Stop trying to find meaning in the things that really will never provide it. Ultimately, you will only find meaning as God gives meaning to things. Your ultimate joy is only going to be found when He gives it. And you can only find that in His Word. Right? Look at this. He says, you should eat and drink and find enjoyment in that. He found joy when He was working and building and amassing Himself wealth. There was a joy that was there. Well, that's how you've been designed. That's how you've been created. You will find joy when you put your hands to something. When you go to work, and you start creating things, and you start stepping out in your gifts and doing the things that God has created you to do, you're going to find incredible joy there. And when you honor your Creator and you give pleasure to Him, He will give you the joy. And then He strips it from those who fail to do so. And not only does He strip that joy away from them, but He takes everything that they had worked for their whole life, and He gives it to those who are His. Jesus says that. He says, everything that you had, even if you didn't have anything, that still would be stripped from you and being given to others. So someone could spend their entire life invested in something, trying to find meaning in something and never find it, and having worked all their whole life, it just to be stripped away from them in the end and nothing in the end. Nothing. So for to the one who pleases God, God's going to give them wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, the business of gathering and collecting only need to give the one who does not only to give to the one who pleases God. So, let our life and our vantage point be pleasing to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would rescue us from ourselves, from the vanity of our thinking, for trying to set up and establish foundations and meaning where there is no meaning, which is empty and chasing after the wind, as we've learned today. Lord, let us repent of pursuing pleasure as a foundation for meaning. For pursuing wisdom as a foundation for meaning. And toil, even our labors, as a foundation for meaning. For you provide meaning, pleasure, and joy and all of those things. And we know that all of that can only be found in Christ. Lord, as we share with our unbelieving friends and neighbors, that we would point to that. That we would do an internal critique of a worldview that is caught up in the pursuits of this world. That we'd use the language here that the Kualeth, the teacher, has provided for us. That we would show that Havel is alone in anything. The vanity, the frailty, the temporality, the meaninglessness of anything apart from Christ. That we should build up a philosophy according to Christ, not pursue vain and empty philosophies of worldly imaginations. I know that You have written eternity in immense hearts. And Lord, the beauty of that is we can point to that and say, You know something's wrong. You know this isn't right. You know that Your pursuit is absolutely ending in nothing but pure meaningless and You will be forgotten. You might think You're important today, but tomorrow You will be forgotten. So I pray that we would Lord, embrace this ourselves. Commit our hearts to this that our meaning is found in Christ. Our hope is found in Christ. That we're not so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good, but that we can enjoy the toils of our labors. Appreciate the now. Appreciate the time that we have with one another. The small things. The time with our kiddos. We're not waiting for them to grow up and hurry up and get out of the house. That we're enjoying the time that we have with them. That we're pouring into them and discipling them in this very thing. That we're showing them where true value and meaning comes from. That they'd be firmly found in Christ. That we would enjoy the relationships that we have with one another here in the church. Here we sit upon this wonderful treasure of relationships that could be built and flourish and grow. And we miss it. We're so in a rush to rush out the door. We're so in a rush to... Spend time with other people really who have very little involvement in our lives. We pour into time and others and our work and our efforts, Lord, only to to feel like left empty-handed in the end. It's because we've entirely put all of our energy and effort into finding meaning in the work instead of appreciating the work for what it is, a means to an end, so that we get to enjoy our time under the sun with You, Lord, and fellowship with one another. I pray that uh, this time would have been a blessing to my brothers and sisters, that this word would have gotten through to them, their eyes would be open, and they would come to a greater appreciation of the here and now. In Jesus' name, amen.